Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello, everyone. You have found us. Uh, this is this month's podcast of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. With us, as always, the star of the show, Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello, Dale. Good morning, Gary. April is one of my favorite months. I love April as well. I'm going to turn 65 on April 13th, get my first Social Security check and my Medicare card. So, uh, Bright things ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for you. Things that we're going to talk about this month I think will be of great interest. Uh, we know there are several factors that may limit quail populations. We could be talking about weather. We could be talking about predators. A lot of factors uh, that we can control and perhaps not control. We need to add parasites to that list because parasites is really a focus of quail management right now. Parasites have really been in the news, Gary, uh, really since about 2012. In 2011, I gathered a group of uh, nine different researchers, Texas A&M, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, Kingsville, and we met in Sweetwater, Texas to discuss what I called Operation Idiopathic Decline. Our quail numbers in 2010, based on weather, should have been good. They weren't and our, my, my various quail forecasters, folks like Roy Wilson, who you know, he basically said, I, don't, I just don't feel comfortable trying to make a forecast anymore. can't figure it out. And so brought these uh, colleagues of mine in together to Sweetwater there. At that time, we had about $2 million in our bank, at, uh, in our bankroll there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. Our president, Rick Snipes, said, spend it all. We want to get to the bottom of this. If, if disease is an issue, here's $2 million and we're going to bet the farm on it. And so we uh, came up with a series of projects, again, that fell under this umbrella of Operation Idiopathic Decline. Idiopathic is medical jargon, basically for the doctor don't know. Disease of unknown origin. And we, I thought that was what was happening to our quail. We didn't have a, we kept talking habitat, 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 if it rains, we'll have quail. Those those paradigms weren't fitting right. And so uh, over the next three years, this team of scientists, uh, we looked at over 2,200 quail from 35 counties in West Texas and Western Oklahoma, doing uh, all kinds of sampling on bacteriology, heavy metals, um, parasites, these various things like this, basically leaving no stone unturned. We wanted to see if we could find out what was making the quail more vulnerable or less reproductive. So uh, working with these various scientists, and again, this, this isn't uh, Dale and Gary out there with a pocket knife and a pair of forceps. This is quail CSI at the highest level using molecular tools, uh, colleagues from the uh, vet school at Texas A&M, and being able to do a lot of the, you know, order of the day research, uh, real science, if you will. And uh, like I said, we went through about 2,200 quail, the, we learned some interesting things, like 25 new species of bacteria really? found within the guts that had not been described. But the two issues that came up were both parasites. Uh, one of them is called the eye worm, resides behind the eye. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And the other one is called the cecal worm. Mm -hmm. That's C-E-C-A-L. Uh, birds, quail at least, have a pair of structures 
at the junction of the small and large intestine called cecum. We have one of them. It's about this long. It's called appendix. So basically, if you're not a ruminant, you probably have some type of cecum or cecal development. And then quail, those will be about the size of your little fingers, and they help with digestion of roughage and other types of things. They probably have some other function, maybe like antibody production, some things we don't fully understand, some of those. But the cecal are important structures. Uh, I'll talk first about the cecal worm. We've known that quail have cecal worms, and basically every critter out there has their own complement of internal parasites. Um, the ones that we have here in our quail in Texas, it's called Alonocephalus, and I did my master's work. Part of my master's work back in 1980 at Oklahoma State was looking at the parasites of bobwhite and blue quail where they were sympatric, their ranges overlap. Little did I know 40 years ago that that would come full circle and be very topical. Uh, the, the birds that I looked at uh, in their cecal, I, did, I didn't look at eye worms. I didn't know to at the time. So we looked at cecal worms and the average might have been 80 worms per bird. The highest I recorded was 423. 423 worms, now these are not microscopic critters. They're about, uh, about a half inch long and a little bit smaller than the diameter of a mechanical pencil. 423 of them inside your little fingers, that's pretty well strutted those organs. And uh, so basically via interference, they've plugged up your digestive system. So if they are important for digestion of cellulose and so forth as they're touted to be, we've probably impacted that and probably not in a good way. Other studies in Texas, South Texas, various places, again, all report these cecal worms, generally not at as high a level as what we've seen, and I'll discuss that more in a second. But uh, the cecal worm is, uh, is one of the two. Now, what got me interested in that initially, when I did my undergraduate at Southwestern Oklahoma State University, I was in field biology. And I took more biology classes than anybody else. I had 55 hours worth of biology. Wow. But one of those was parasitology. Now, this is something not very many people take. And I had an interesting professor, and of course, that makes the class interesting. And he used to recite what he called the parasitologist pledge. Bigger bugs have smaller bugs upon their backs to bite them. Smaller bugs have lesser bugs, and so on ad infinitum. So we can talk about a critter the size of an elephant. He's got something working on him. That's got something working on it's, it's a complex um, cascading or continuum of various organisms like that. And then, like I said, I did my uh, master's thesis. You know, a couple of months ago, we did one called Planting the Root. Little did I know that I was kind of shaping my future and something that was going to turn out or possibly turn out to be really important in quail management, and that being a study of parasites. So again, just one of those things. Was it serendipity or was it destiny? I That's don't right. know, but I'm proud that I had that, uh, that opportunity. Few of my colleagues think that parasites are important. They're background noise, if you will. Yeah, they've got them, but it's not really anything to be concerned about. So if, if you've uh, had a technical background in quail management, you didn't think about diseases and parasites, unless you were dealing with pin-reared quail where crowding in a poultry situation then diseases and parasites can become extremely important. But out in the wild, uh, you know, it's probably not a big deal. It'll take care of itself. That's the traditional paradigm about, uh, about parasites. 
somebody once said that, uh, it was Aldo Lippo that said, conservation is a bird that flies faster than the shot we aim at it. So sometimes if that quail's flying across like this, with our thinking, we're way back here, again, in the habitat, 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 if it rains well quail, when we need to be saying, are there other things and getting out in front of those. That's what we try to do with Operation Idiopathic Decline. So again, I went out, I did my uh, master's thesis, and one, one chapter of it uh, involved parasitology, kind of got me interested in it. When we developed the Rolling Plains Quill Research Ranch in 2007, one of the first studies that we started we started this in 2009, was the parasites of the Bob White quail. Okay. And a year-round look. What I'd looked at and what most people look at is just birds that are secured during the hunting season. So we get a slice in time, but what's happening to the parasite load in April when those hens are about to, are, are egg-laying? When do those chicks begin to get parasites and is it a problem for some of them? So we had a young lady by the name of Stacy Villarreal uh, worked on her master's with Dr. Alan Fedenich down at Kingsville, and they came up and uh, we studied that for two years and found some interesting things. We noted, uh, one of the things we noted were these eye worms. Now the eye worms were discovered in quail back in 1959 by A.S. Jackson, one of the old time real quail biologists for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department up at the Matador uh, Wildlife Management Area. And he described them a little bit and, and talked about them and talked about how some quail acted funny. They'd run, but they wouldn't flush. And then from 1961, really until 2011, there was no other mention of eye worms. Nobody followed up. When I did my master's work, when I was uh, instructed on how to do a necropsy of quail parasites, they never mentioned the eyes. Really? So we never looked at them. So just exactly what the population dynamics of the parasite, the eye worm, was between 60s and 2010 or 11 is, who knows? It's received an incredible amount of attention over the last seven or eight years. Uh, what we've done there in, uh, at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch and throughout these 35 sites in West Texas, uh, South Texas has begun to look at them. I've got, I'm on three master's students committees out at Sol Ross because they're looking at the role of parasites in blue quail. So it's a very topical issue. Uh, the one that has garnered most of the attention is the eye worm. And again, this is not a microscopic parasite. You can see it very easily with your naked eye. It's a little bit larger than the sequel worm. So it's maybe three quarters of an inch long. And again, about the size uh, diameter of a mechanical lead pencil. A lot of the work that's been done on this has been done with Dr. Ron Kendall and the Wildlife Toxicology Lab up at Texas Tech. Since 2012, we've invested about four and a half million dollars in various aspects of the eye worm research. About half of that's coming from the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, the other half from the Park City's chapter of Quail Coalition. And so it's, it's got our, it's raised our eyebrows, yes. if you will. And Dr. Kendall says that if we were to expand the size of a quail's eye to the size of a human's eye, these worms would be the size of toothpicks. Really? Where it gets interesting is, uh, again, you don't see these worms. Most of them reside behind the eyeball. They reside in a couple of glands, one called the Harderian gland. They reside right next to the optic nerve. And during the OID phase, during that 11 to 13, our average across 35 sites was about six to seven eye worms per bird. We don't know, we didn't know if that was significant or not, it was a baseline level. Since that time, 
most of our studies and those done by the Wildlife Toxicology Lab are finding anywhere from 12 to 40 eyeworms per bird. That much of an increase. Now, anytime you get 25, I'm going to hearken back to uh, my first introduction to John Sharp, the chancellor at Texas A&M University. Found out that John was a um, avid student of quail, had three quail aces in Texas. In 2011, he called me. He didn't have any quail on any of them. He wanted to know what was going on, so we invited him to come out but uh, visit us at the Quail Research Ranch. We had found a quail dead two days before next to a woven wire fence. It's obvious the bird had flown to the fence. I told my manager at the time, Lloyd, I said, hold this one over. We're going to dissect this one when the chancellor gets there. So now we've got the chancellor out there. We're looking through a dissecting scope. As soon as Lloyd kind of cracks the eyelid of that quail, it looks like spaghetti really? coming out of it. So it's, it's a graphic deal when you see a, a quail like that. Now, we have not necessarily been able to tie the, uh, tie the knot between if it has eye worms, is it lethal or is it detrimental to quail? Logically, it is. When you see the eyes and those eye worms, you think, how could that possibly be good for quail? Right, impair their vision. Right. And if a quail with impaired vision is in a world of hurt. Uh, again, death from above, death from tall grass. We've talked about all that on previous podcasts. And anything that impairs a bird's vision or its vigor, we gotta, we're in a world of hurt. Uh, the president of our foundation at the time, Rick Snipes, would use this analogy. If you know who Usain Bolt is, the Olympic sprinter. The sprinter from Jamaica. If he's off 5%, he's not Usain Bolt anymore. And that's kind of what a quail is. Any drop in vigor, uh, vision, that kind of thing, uh, is gonna, probably going to be detrimental to the, to the quail. And another thing we got to think about it, Again, our studies recently have found anywhere from 10, typically 10 to 40 eyeworms per bird. The most we found, 108 eyeworms per wow. quail. Wow. And again, you just look at that and say, I don't think I want spaghetti tonight for supper kind of thing. It's too graphic. But um, so when we, we, one of the things that we've done over in the last three years is we solicit heads of quail from quail hunters saying, y'all send us your quail heads and a wing so we can age that bird and we'll do the necropsy. What we're trying to do is build a heat map, a thunderstorm map, if you will, a, a graphic representation of where the eyeworm densities are the highest. 2019, the hot spot was Fisher County. Fisher County. Where our research ranch is. So we want to, the southern rolling plains tends to be the epicenter. Uh, again, we go all the way up into southwestern Kansas and find this bird. We looked at various other states. We had people sending us heads. Uh, by and large, if you get outside of that rolling plains, uh, you, you don't find very many. We had one bird from Alabama, I think, had two hours, as I recall. Um, but ours are bad enough that we think we have a real issue with them. And so, again, with the leadership of Dr. Kendall and the, the Wildlife Toxicology Lab, they began to work on and develop and get approved an anthelmintic, a dewormer for wild quail. Now the FDA has never registered or labeled a, a dewormer for wild birds. So uh, over the last four years, Dr. Kendall and his students up there have done a lot of research as far as the efficacy of the drug, 
the, the uh, environmental side effects, if you will, and all as a part of that strict testing by the FDA. Uh, we think, uh, Dr. Kendall thinks, that by the end of this year, we will have that medicated feed available. It'll be called QuailGuard, and it would be administered twice a year for three weeks at a time. In other words, about this time, March, April, and then again in August, September. And we'd like to think that that'll kill both the eye worm and it'll kill the sequel worm. Mm -hmm. So we're very anxious to get our hands on the drug, the medicated feed, to where we can try some experiments that I'm anxious to look at as far as asking the question, if we treat these wild quail, do we see better survival or better reproduction? And if so, can that be a paradigm shift or will it be a paradigm shift in our whole philosophy about quail management? The background and the story that we often reference, the history of this, we have colleagues over in the UK, United Kingdom, they've been studying red grouse over there for over 200 years. I mean, it's an important game bird on those, a lot of those places. It is the, it's the Bob White of the UK. And so one of the issues they had was a sequel worm, not the same one we have. It's one called Trichostrongulus, but it's a, it's a sequel worm and it would reach high levels and it would basically reduce the vigor of the, of the grouse and they'd be more vulnerable to their predators, whether that be a red fox or a northern harrier or whatever the case might be. They developed a medicated grit and put out these medicated grit piles and documented unequivocally that if they could get this grit into the, into the uh, red grouse, they could control the sequel worm numbers and they saw an increase in survival of those birds. So we're, we want to hang our hat on that same kind of thing if we can document that that's happening and be able to apply that to our bio-white and scale quail. Quail are not the only ones that get this eye worm. Prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens, what do you know about the status of those birds? Going to be listed at some point in time yes. on the endangered species. It was, it was intended to be listed, and then politically it, got, it didn't get listed. But they harbor high numbers of, uh, of eye worms. Mockingbirds, roadrunners. So then you begin, you begin to say, well, what's the commonality here? Well, they all eat insects. Okay. And it turns out that both of these parasites, sick worms and eye worms, use an intermediate host, an insect typically. And so if it's infected with the larvae of the eye worm, a quail picks it up, eats it, it goes to the crop, which is a storage organ for quail, so the craw, as your grandpa would have called it. Within 15 minutes, the larvae of that grasshopper break out of that grasshopper, move up the esophagus to the uh, leads, tear duct, leads to the eye, move up that, and then they take resident behind the eye of the bird, and they breed, and they're a long-lived critter. They basically don't die until the bird dies, kind of thing. So it's, a, it's really an intriguing mystery, if you will. We all like good mysteries. This one is a great mystery. It's a great uh, crime story, if you will. And we're looking forward again to hopefully this uh, quail guard will be one of the black boxes that we've been looking for and be able to affect the, uh, be able to kill the, the, kill the uh, eye worms and the sequel worms. And then hopefully we can measure some positive responses in terms of our uh, reproduction and survival. And what's interesting is, 
I got a lot of colleagues who poo ha ha this. Ah, red herring. We're not. That's not really true. Some of those are from South Texas. Some of my colleagues from South Texas. Well, they, following our lead, they they looked at quail, bobwhites, for eyeworms down there, and they found them, but they only found eyeworms in fewer than ten percent of their quails, and an average of only about one eyeworm per bird. Interesting. We've got roughly 10 to 40 times greater incidence and prevalence in the rolling plains. So what's different? Well, it must, uh, conjecture on my part, but there's something different as far as the intermediate host. Some of the work that Dr. Kendall and I have done is molecular screening of various arthropods, insects, and they've identified a half dozen species of grasshoppers that have the intermediate host in them. So just what that means and how we impact that, we don't know. But if we can break the cycle, if we can begin to control it in our quail, perhaps on the order of 70% of our quail, that's got to be worked out, but there's some, there's some magic thresholds there that if you can treat enough of them, you can probably have an impact. It could be that some of our practices are fostering those, those species of grasshoppers. So is it our lack of burning, is it our, our frequency of fire, is something changing the plant community that's fostering that suite of arthropods? Those are questions uh, we haven't answered yet. But the, the whole thing about uh, this again is, are they impacting the vigor of those quail, either in the gut or in the eye? Now the eye worm's getting all the attention but it could be, I, sometimes I wonder if the sequel worm, which is, is more prevalent, I mean, we have, we have sequel worms in South Texas, again, not at the level that we see in Rolling Plains, but is that whole parasite complex, is that one of the factors that's suppressing our quail population? To deliver that medicated feed, Dr. Rollins, uh, there's going to be certain uh, spatial requirements to, to reach those thresholds. What will be the methodology in getting that feed out once it becomes available? Still some work to be done on that. Uh, what Dr. Kendall's recommending at this time would be like two feeders per section. Now you're not gonna feed very many, I mean, you're gonna feed perhaps 20 to 30% of your quail population at that density. So some of those logistics, I think still need to be worked out, uh, but it's, um, the eyes of Texas are upon us, if you will. <laughs> and again, there's been a lot of effort um, and we hope that that feed becomes available uh, by the end of 2020. So, and it's really interesting, 2020, 2020 your eyes, good yes. vision. Yes. So I guess just one of those kind of cool it. relationships. Could be a good headline. Could be a good headline. Positive results. Yeah. The quail itself, it ingests this medicated feed. It will uh, prevent eye worms uh, from being reestablished or will kill those that are in its body it, at that point? It'll just kill the ones that are there. It won't keep them, it won't be like a, a pre-emergent, if you were talking about herbicide, because they're going to continue to eat infected arthropods, right. and so they're going to get reinfected. It's basically like stomach worms and, and sheep or goats kind of thing. It's going to happen. you gotta, you got to drench those sheep or drench those goats uh, to take care of those stomach worms. And again, there are analogies in our livestock world that say parasites are an issue, and, and our Typically our livestock are such that they're not big enough, they have to worry about 50 different critters gonna eat them kind of thing like quail does. So quail got a lot of threats out there. And uh, again, it don't take, it wouldn't, again, going back to the analogy of Usain Bolt, if we take 5% off Usain Bolt, 
he's just another competitor. He's not the one that's breaking records. Fair to say that these new findings and these potential results could could be a paradigm shift in, in management of quail? Could be. I, I'm, I'm not ready to hang my hat on that just yet. Uh, there are some studies that, uh, that I want to see done and I'm prepared to do as soon as I can get my hands on the Medicaid feed. Again, it's strictly what, you know, what can be done with the feed right now is strictly regulated by oversight from the FDA and Dr. Kendall is very cautious about doing anything outside of that that would, you know, jeopardize the progress that he's made to date, so understandably so. But I've got some uh, studies uh, intended that uh, hopefully by next year we'll be doing those at the research ranch. I, I want to go back a little bit to the uh, eye worm, and we, we do know some things. We can't absolutely say that if you've got eye worms, you're going to die from predator. Okay. Or you're going to die from starving death because you can't see the feeds. But uh, one of the students that did her... Uh, master's work in this OID work, her name is uh, Andrea Bruno, she's now Dr. Bruno, down at uh, the East Foundation in South Texas. And part of her work was looking at the histopathology, what's happening to the tissues behind the eyes as a result of these eye worms. Again, they reside largely in the uh, hardarian gland back there behind. So when you open that up, that's where typically you see what looks like squid coming out of it kind of thing. And she documented uh, scratching of the cornea. These, these worms move from eye to eye oh my through word. the nasal system and so forth. And so scratching of the cornea, some pathology associated with the optic nerve. So there's several physiological mechanisms that we say that can't be good for no. quail. It's difficult to document just how bad it may be. But we just can't, uh, we have a hard time believing it's beneficial. Quail Research Foundation uh, Ranch and the foundation has some excellent resource material available uh, to document some of these findings, some of this ongoing research. Where can folks learn more about that? Certainly visit our website, quailresearch.org, and you'll find links there to Dr. Kendall's website, the Wildlife Toxicology Lab, and to be able to go into those, you'll be able to see the abundant and very technical aspects of these various studies that have been done. So I would encourage a serious student that's interested in learning more about this to, to look up those two websites. Don't necessarily give me a call saying, is it available yet? As soon as it becomes available, believe me, we'll be doing a, we'll be doing a podcast yes. or, or we'll be doing an eQuail newsletter or something Some. that talks about the availability of that. But uh, we look forward to getting it and again, hope that it is the, uh, the revelation or the um, the paradigm shift that we think it could be. Unprecedented, I would suspect, in the level of undertaking, 35 counties, 2,200 birds. That's never before, probably, has it been uh, accomplished in that way. Right, and again, it points to the fact that this happened over a large area. Like I said, the Rolling Plains appears to be the epicenter for whatever reason. And so uh, while people in uh, Hebronville are enjoying a great year this year, those of us across the Rolling Plains are wondering just what impact these parasites may have had on our pitiful quail population. The investment, uh, that's noteworthy. You talked about $4 million from two principal sources dedicated to this project. Uh, what does that tell you about the, the faith and the ownership that those groups have in this project? Well, number one, I'm always very proud of uh, the private dollars. Uh, our funding at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation is about 95% private dollars sportsmen, quail hunters ponying up that money. And then Park City's quail, they raised $1.7 million last year in one night at their banquet. 
They've typically raised, you know, close to a million dollars. We're the beneficiary of, of much of that. They pay for our operating costs at the Research Foundation. They also give Dr. Kendall $200,000 or so a year to maintain his uh, faculty there and, and to con continue with this important research. So they've got uh, skin in the game. And again, they're frustrated by the fact that we haven't solved the quail decline issue. Well, have we been looking in the right spot? And this is one of those situations where it may prove that we've always passed this over as insignificant. Maybe it wasn't. Naturally occurring, these worms are going to be there. It's a question of how do you deal with it, how do you manage it? Right. And, and again, there's, there's a lot of the logistical questions that are going to have to be worked out. Uh, Mr. Snipes, again, our past president, he, he would often say three or four years ago, we're in the bag phone stage now. But five years from now, we're going to be in the iPhone stage. And so, again, technology and the, the, all the research that's been done is, is just going like that right now. It's got to be exciting for you at this point in your career to see this opportunity perhaps coming to be. Always, I'm always excited to uh, hunt with good dogs, as I call it. That's Susie's number one uh, rule and Susie's 12-point plan for success. Surround yourself with people that are smarter and brighter than you. You're going to be better off just by the competition and the uh, you know the the opportunity there. And so the the whole uh, faculty up there at Texas Tech and the other universities that we've dealt with that's kept me current, and I feel like that's important to me. It's kept me current on what these various issues are and what the various technologies are and how they may be able to be useful to us in quail management. Well, thank you, Dr. Rollins. I learned a lot in this podcast. Such interesting science, interesting research and hopeful outcomes. Uh, we're looking forward to more updates on this new product and how it might help quail managers across the state. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast as well. We thank you for joining us each month, bringing you the latest on quail information, insights from Dr. Dale Rollins. We hope you join us again as we move forward with interesting topics in the months ahead. Please join us uh, for archive issues of this podcast at quailresearch.org at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Appreciate your time. See you next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.